0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Van Maren Show on lifesightnews.com My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and today we're going to talk about a book that's coming out on June the 24th, a book that I think a lot of you will be interested in. It's a book by my friend Andrew Lawton of True North News called The Freedom Convoy, the inside story of three weeks that shook the world. I read it over the weekend. It really is a phenomenal book. It pulls everything together. If you're one of those who incessantly followed the convoy on all the social media streams and then found that contrasted by the mainstream media coverage and wondered you know, who Pat King was and who Tamara Leach was and what this was all about, this is the book for you. I do recommend that you go and buy it. You can get it on Amazon. You can get it at Sutherland House Books it's andrew really just did a, a fantastic job on this just you know creating a piece of journalism that i think puts the the reality of what happened on the record after having talked to to most of the significant figures that that ran the convoy and those of you who follow this at all will know that for true north andrew was in ottawa uh for most of the convoy he went up there at several points and just live streamed all of the events uh, my friend and i bumped into him and we went up uh to to cover the convoy uh, right before the crackdown actually uh, at the end there and so i wanted to just kind of talk about the freedom convoy with andrew go through all the details debunk some of the mainstream media narratives but then also find out what they got right and and why they got so much wrong it's it's a really fair even-handed book I have to say this is not this is not just a puff job this is not Andrew Lott writing you know 174 pages complementing every aspect of the convoy it is a genuine piece of journalism and that he analyzes you know what the convoy organizers did wrong the mistakes that they made in terms of promoting their cause uh, he talks about the, the aspects of it that undermine their credibility. But then also talks about just sort of the, the the wild grassroots nature of this thing that sort of sprung up in front of Parliament and, you know, spread through the, the side streets over the ensuing several weeks and created this weird, uh, you know, organism um, that existed until the crackdown that we all watched uh, happening live a couple of weeks later. So do go and get a copy of uh, The Freedom Convoy, the inside story of three weeks that shook the world by Andrew Lauden. And and to whet your appetite for that purchase, here is my conversation with him. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us again on the very exciting occasion of what I hope is just your first
1: book. Yeah, it's my pleasure. I hope so as well. Now I think I've got the the bug, so I'll have to do another one.
0: I can't actually emphasize how much of a good job this is in terms of the journalism of it, because so much of the book is just untangling this massive and in many ways weird grassroots web that became the Freedom Convoy and it's very very clear once you start reading it you actually get a very coherent and concise picture of how this thing unfolded who the major players were how they interacted with each other like it's just just a really incredible piece of journalism.
1: Well I appreciate that and I should say right off the bat you are, are instrumental in this book existing because you and I, I mean we've been friends for many years and I was complaining to you after this thing about how I wanted to read a book about this first and foremost and I think you had given me the pep talk to like just just do it yourself who better to do it and i think that's really what was happening here i was seeing on the ground this story that i knew was just so much more complex than other people were seeing and i wanted to just first and foremost document that and then also see uh, what else uh, what else i could unearth in that process
0: i think the book actually does present a challenge to all of those who characterized the freedom convoy uh, the way that they did, like the people who tried to take the the still unknown swastika guy and characterize the whole convoy by him, that would include Trudeau himself, uh, those who who insisted that this was just a group of complete whack jobs with with the goal of taking over the government. Like you're very balanced insofar as you didn't try to deny what actually happened you specifically cite all of the things that people brought up throughout the protests you talk about um when when the conspiracy theories came up and so because you're so fair in how you how you deal with this i I do think this book is now the journalistic standard by which others um will have to judge it unless they're willing to rebut it have you gotten any response from any mainstream journalists yet on on this book in terms of the narrative that it lays out
1: Not specifically. Now, I mean, part of that, I should say, is that review copies to journalists have only just been going out, and I don't think all of them are as uh, quick of readers as you are. Uh, But I I will be interested in seeing that because I I do name names in in some respects of of outlets that I think really did have a a very negligent or in some cases malicious view of this convoy. But I, I also try to give credit where it's due, even to some mainstream media journalists, of people that I think did try to at least go and, and talk to the people, which in and of itself shouldn't be, but it ended up emerging as some sort of radical concept that had never been tried before in journalism.
0: Yeah, now that's interesting because uh, so you cite two journalists, just slipping through your book here, uh, Evan Solomon and the the second name um, escapes me. Sean
1: O'Shea was the uh, the other
0: one. That's right. Uh, of people who, who basically went and actually interviewed a lot of different people, had their discussions, you know, got yelled at, but didn't act like didn't act like they were landing in Fallujah during the middle of the surge um just be, just because a couple of people chirped at them in, in downtown ottawa but one of the the interesting uh, interesting things i wanted to ask you is if i ha- if i had to say that there was two key journalists presenting dueling narratives of the convoy dueling narratives being one of your chapter names it probably would have been you and then justin ling who's a freelance journalist who does a lot of his work in uh, in McLean's magazine and he was basically the journalist uh, who did a lot of the the heavy lifting To justify the narrative that this was white supremacists, that this was crazy people, right? He did all these massive live streams that would take, you know, signs hanging up along Wellington and extrapolate that these were all crazy conspiracy theorists with genuinely, with genuinely bad motives. And... I think the difficulty for folks like Ling is that you you spoke with so many people that gave you. I'm surprised at how much you got. Like it's a testament to how much the organizers trusted you that they told you, you know, what the arguments were all about. When the organizers disagreed, the dueling meetings, you know, the grifters that tried to take advantage of the convoy for, to raise their own personal profiles. Do you think that guys like Ling, if they would like to also produce a book on the convoy or even a piece of long form journalism that's of the sort that's almost dead in this? Country, Country are going to have difficulty because... I suspect most of the people who talk to you wouldn't talk to anybody else.
1: Yeah, and that was actually one of the interesting themes of the convoy, and it was a source of a bit of the friction that you alluded to there between some of the organizers was how to engage or, or if to engage at all with mainstream media. And a lot of people latched on to that initial press conference that happened, I think it was on the first Sunday, when the organizers said, yeah, we're only inviting independent media. We're not inviting anyone else. Else. And that was, I would argue, I think a bit of a tactical error because it meant that all media could do was uh, exclude the organizers from the story. And I guess it ultimately depends on the end game. I I mean, Benjamin Dichter, who's one of the lead spokespeople of the convoy, he had sort of indicated that he saw this as an exercise in exposing media bias. So for his purposes, letting the media publish false narratives might actually in a perverse way have helped. But that's also a bigger picture goal than simply the convoy and wanting its story told. And I think that was the big problem is that ultimately these organizers were in many respects missing from their own own story
0: that's a very interesting way of putting that because one of the things that struck me while reading your book right is is you talk about the different missteps for example the the meeting with with Candice Bergen who was then the head of the official opposition that never happened how did you get that story by the way
1: so interestingly enough that one I was told by multiple people in passing and it was only when I was going through my notes after that I'm like wait wait a minute people are referencing this thing and and I, I went back and, and talked to a couple of them and, and actually got quite a bit of information that had never been and still to this day has not been reported publicly, which is how one of the first things that Candace Bergen did after she was appointed interim leader was to try to set up a meeting with Tamara Leach. And, and the context of this, as you know, and people may remember, is that Aaron O'Toole had just been ousted in large part thanks to the convoy, which gave, I think, a lot of his critics the thrust to get rid of this guy that couldn't even articulate a position on whether he supported the truckers, which pretty much everyone in the conservative movement in Canada was.
0: One of the the things that always strikes me about events like this that you couldn't you can't predict and and you know take a whole book to explain once they're over is that if, if you had talked to me, and probably you too, you can confirm or deny this, at the very beginning, the idea of a convoy that's explicit goal was the lifting of all mandates, I would have like shifted directly into political calculation mode, right? And been like, okay, well, the math just doesn't add up. There's not enough people voting on this to make it worth Trudeau's while. Um, and I would have gone through a whole bunch of, uh, of different, of different uh, counterfactuals and scenarios and decided that this totally wasn't worth it. And so in some ways, the lack of sophistication possessed by a lot of the convoy organizers, which is what made this thing happen in the first place, because they were like, we're just going to do this. We're going to show up in Ottawa with a whole bunch of 18-wheelers. That's the plan, right? And and, and because... They had this view that, you know, by our very presence and and by occupying the downtown, we can force politicians to meet with you. They ended up creating this crazy movement, despite the fact that there was never really any realistic scenario in which politicians sent out delegations that resulted in, 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 in their goals actually being undertaken. So in some ways, the lack of political sophistication is not only in this case, but in others, the very thing that seems to lead these things to succeed in the first place. You know what I mean?
1: I mean, I actually haven't thought of it that way. And and I think that there is a fair bit of disagreement among people in the convoy about whether they did believe that what they were pursuing was a realistic goal. And and one example of, of this is that in, I think it was January, when there was a one-day period where the government had reversed its position on, or it looked like it had reversed its position on the trucker mandate. And what had happened was CBSA, the Border Services Agency, had kind of misunderstood. So they put this out, and a lot of the organizers thought, wow, we did it. We've, they, we haven't even gone to Ottawa. And we've already folded. And then, the government came and said, No, 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 that was a mistake. We are still proceeding with this mandate. And then everyone just said, Okay, the protest continues. But I, I do think there was a, a genuine optimism that they were going to at least get something from the federal government.
0: Was Trudeau's response in that way surprising, right? Like, I'll admit that the, uh, the the political stupidity of telling a Jewish member of parliament that she was standing with people who waved swastikas was a bit much to swallow, especially considering, you know, his own blackface history, et cetera, et cetera. But was it really surprising that progressives um, reacted the way they did? Because at one point in the book, you kind of you point out that based on what they were reading, so based on what Trudeau and the liberals and the NDP would have been reading, they weren't actually getting any counter narrative about the convoy to begin with. Because they were getting the the sort of memo put out by folks like Justin Ling, who focused as as hard as they could on on the outliers in order to present the very narrative that Trudeau wanted to hear in the first place. And so you got this sort of media politician feedback loop where a a convoy existing outside of, of, of time and space that was entirely run by racists ended up dominating the mainstream for like a couple of weeks.
1: There is something to that. I I also think that one dimension of this that was missing and I I didn't really get a chance to delve into it in the book as much is the class element of this And, and I think this is what really rubbed a lot of people that were looking at the truckers that weren't part of a conservative movement. But they were watching from the sidelines. I think this is what rubbed them the wrong way is they were seeing these essential workers, these blue collar guys and gals, these people that had previously been exalted as being the backbone of Canada during the pandemic that were now just being thrust aside because they didn't agree with this overarching vaccination goal that the government put out. And, and I think that was so key here. I mean, the NDP, which has been a party that has uh, never shied away of supporting protest, even those that are ostensibly illegal, decided, no, 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 the right to protest only extends if you support these causes. And even if it was predictable, I think it was still quite shameful.
0: Now, one of the things I would like to see the media do in general, and it's well inside their purview, is the number of stories that came out that were later corrected because the the only point in the book where i found myself getting almost just a little bit upset is you just have a couple of pages in which you blast through a whole bunch of the stories that were put out that were later debunked right where where you know the mayor of ottawa or the the police chief or the former police chief you know directly contradict narratives that at 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 the time were across the mainstream media were published as fact and if you go onto their websites right now this is this is still the a matter of official record this is the public record and you have to go to you know statements by various officials or your book to realize that that is not, in fact, what happened. And I think it's fair to say that the media's narrative, even if they did not intend to be deliberately false at the time, did present a a false narrative. And and I think an essay-type article just saying, like, you know, like, looking back at reporting on the convoy, here's what we know now, here's what we know then. Any chance that your book is going to trigger something
1: like that? Well, I would hope so. And by the way, I should say, I mean, you know how publishing works. You know it's not like writing an article online where you just, you know, hit hit the draft, you review it, you click publish it's up. I mean, there's a delay between when you submit and then edit, and when you're getting the book printed and and sent out. And it was in that process, while this book was being, uh, was going through the channels of of being printed, that we were still getting more information about how the official narrative was simply not true, specifically with regard to the federal government uh, relying on police and uh, for invoking the Emergencies Act. That's been debunked, but other things as well. And there were times where I was like, you know, three chapters later and a story would come out of debunking something I referenced earlier on. And it's like, Oh, well, I can go back and change that now.
0: I was very sympathetic to the convoy at the time uh, for, 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 you know, all of the obvious reasons. And I found my, by by the time I got through your book, I I had shifted from like, you know, very sympathetic to, I had so much more respect for the organizers then because you know, the you you kind of balance with what you saw yourself on the ground. Like I went there, I talked to dozens of them, um i know i know a couple of them decently well and then and then there's you know the mainstream narrative and so you kind of try to both sides it right where you're like well you know there were some crazies and we have to recognize the crazies and then at the same time there's all these these awesome people and i think in one article where, where i was explaining why so many christians supported the convoy i just said like the convoy is it kind of defies uniform description it's the convergence of a whole bunch of stories because on Wellington Street I had met people who had lost people to 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 mental health issues during the pandemic people who had lost their jobs like everybody seemed to have a different story and the convoy was in some way sort of this this you know act of collective catharsis and that brings me to your subtitle which is the one thing i saw everybody you know bitching at you about on twitter the inside story of 3 weeks that shook the world explain the subtitle for those who were skeptical
1: to be honest this was the source of an ongoing discussion between my publisher and me and you know this was even if it was a canadian protest driven by canadian policy made up by canadian people it had a global impact and and i think there are two reasons for this number 1 most of the honest coverage that we got was coming from outside of canada And this was something that was quite significant, where we'd see outlets like uh, GB News in the UK, even the New York Times in the United States, and other non-Canadian outlets that were really devoting more emphasis to covering this fairly than Canada was, Canadian outlets were. And the other part is that it triggered this wave of other protests outside of the country that emulated that convoy style. And, And we saw in news coverage the term I've never seen before, Canada. Style protest this was in brussels in washington in canberra in frankfurt and berlin like you saw all of these convoys around the world so even if it didn't bring the world to its knees like it did the city of ottawa i think it very much shook the world
0: one of the the interesting things about the dueling narratives we see we see emerging is, is to try and explain the Canadian media, because it is so monolithic in so many ways, right? Like, it, when you went up to, to the convoy, which I did, and I saw you up there, and there's, you know, a couple of journalists from, from Ezra Avant's outfit, The Rebel, there was yourself live streaming through True North. Um, there was, a, I'm not going to say her name because I'll mispronounce it, but the very good journalist from National Post who was covering the story.
1: Yeah, Rupa Subramanya.
0: Yeah, yeah, who wrote for us. see yeah, I absolutely would have botched that. Um, you know, she uh, she wrote a great piece for Barry Weiss's uh, Substack Common Sense. But the, the vast majority of the the, the media, besides the, the two notable exceptions, which you, you name in the book, they deviated to a narrative before they even understood the story. It was like, you know, here's people stepping out, out of line on the issue of vaccination, um, and, and the media itself was kind of performing a uniform service where they didn't question anything. It was our job actually is to essentially act as advertisers for government policy on this issue. And it's interesting because journalists like yourself and then, you know, a mutual friend of ours, J.J. McCullough, who was not well liked in in Canadian Canadian media establishment um, circles, probably because he ran a column called Media Bytes at Huffington Post for a couple of years. But you know, besides a handful of of, of unestablishment or in some cases anti establishment figures. They do more or less speak with one voice. And I don't want to just say, look, it's because they get they get um, government funding and stuff like that. But you've worked a, a lot inside, you know, the, the media sphere. You've been published in a lot of these mainstream publications. And so what would your take be on the attitude that they took into their coverage of the convoy to begin with to kind of explain why two such distinct narratives emerged in the first place?
1: You know, this is tough. I, I think that generally speaking, the media took a very deferential view throughout the COVID pandemic of COVID, of vaccination. Uh, even when there were things that you could criticize without you know, being anti-vax, without being a COVID denier and that sort of stuff. And I, I think that that was one part of the story here that was really difficult, is, is that the media did not really take accountability and holding the government accountable as a key priority during COVID. So I think that when all of a sudden you have these people protesting vaccine mandates, they're invested in the very thing that's being protested. I, I think, And I, I don't even think that applies applies on an individual level to every journalist but i think generally that's just part of this cultural trend right now and i think the other aspect of it too is that there is significantly there is a significant disconnect and this goes back to the class thing between a lot of canadian journalists and political class members and truckers and in general it's the you know the laptop class the people that didn't really suffer in any way from covid in any economic way versus the people who have been at the mercy of government Government, whether it's through lockdowns or vaccine mandates and, and ne'er the twain shall meet. I think a lot of these people just genuinely do not understand life outside of their own bubble. And I, I think that really colored the protest because the number of times that I've seen people even now saying, well, what are they even protesting? I mean, when some of the provincial restrictions were lifted, people would say, well, yeah, I mean, everything's fine. It's back to normal. Meanwhile, the unvaccinated can't fly. They've been mandated out of their jobs and so on. And and I think that there was just a a huge blind spot about uh, what people who are unvaccinated, what people who are in these precarious sectors have been dealing with for the last two years.
0: I want to push just a tiny bit further on that one because I do I do think it's so significant because when you have journalists who fail not only to understand those who are not like them but lack the curiosity to discover um, what those people are all about, uh, which is their literally their entire job, right, is to go and to interview people, to find out what's going on, to explain it to other people. But instead you get, oh, I'll take a guy like Andrew Coyne who is not without a handful of Uh, Of conservative instincts here and there, but he treated the whole thing with absolute and total contempt like as of this week he was still saying like this whole thing was a nothing burger you know these protests were a waste of time they could have gotten vaccinated whatever they want right and it's not even just that he doesn't understand their views or that he doesn't respect their views it's that he makes no attempt to understand them or explain them whatsoever and i'll contrast him with a liberal like like jonathan k jonathan k actually interviewed a couple of the convoy participants who he obviously disagreed with on certain things but still wanted to talk to them on his podcast he wrote a great piece on this and and he seems to understand the class dimension of this quite keenly from a far more liberal point of view than I would come from, right? Kay is pro-choice. Again, he's been on board with most of the liberal agenda until quite recently. So he's now he's just not an insane person. And he also tries to understand those he disagrees with. So why are so few of the Canadian journalists, in your view, attempting to do what Kay does very well, which is simply understand uh, those that you might disagree with?
1: Part of it is that they don't want to shatter what is a very comfortable place for them. You know, a lot of these people, again, I mean, if you take a charitable view, a lot of these people have lost a lot in COVID. They have lost, you know, social time. They've lost seeing their kids develop. They've lost, you know, opportunities to bury family members, to have weddings, things like this. And and I don't think a lot of people are comfortable with the idea that that could have been in vain, or at the very least that it could have been because they they bought a lie, not, not a lie that COVID existed, but a lie that, that all of these measures were necessary, that vaccine mandates were necessary, lockdowns were necessary. And I don't think a lot of people want to confront. I don't think a lot of people want to confront that they might have gone along with something that they didn't need to and, and shouldn't have. And I think that when, and I keep going back to the class element here, which I think could have been a book in and of itself, when a bunch of blue-collar truckers, expose this I, I think that's very uncomfortable for people to accept
0: that brings me to to, to the question when you said I, I could have written a book just on this right I, I called your book at the beginning of this interview a piece of reporting and, and that's basically what this is this is just like the details of the who the where the when you kind of go through it in great detail and I think it's the book to beat on that and in fact because of because of how suspicious a lot of organizers are of journalists I suspect nobody's going to do better than this but it's 175 pages without the end notes. What would you have covered if you had been given a more time to get this book out uh, and B, the opportunity to write something substantially longer?
1: I wish there could have been a bit more analysis in it, and and I I, I, should, I should take that back. I don't wish that this particular book had more analysis, but I, I would have liked to have done that if I were doing something that had a bit more of a benefit of time, because I think it was important to put it on the record before the CBC or Toronto Star decided to set the tone for this. So that would be one aspect of this very much. A little bit more analysis on the context, the history of COVID restrictions, uh, where things are are have been and and how we got here I also would have loved to have spent a bit more time going into the life stories of the people that I interviewed of the members of this protest of the organizers and the reason I, I say that is because for a lot of them the story starts when they decided to partake in this protest and, and for them, and it came up in some of my interviews, it really started long before then. And I think understanding who these people were, not just by their actions and their words, but, but by their uh, thoughts and, and history, I think would have been a, an interesting dimension to this, but it would have made it a much more a lengthy undertaking.
0: Do you have any um, follow-up plans? Because one of the things that struck me while I was reading this book is this is a Canada nobody ever writes about, right? If, if we're looking at, if you want to go out right now and you want to buy a book uh, on Canadian politics or just Canada in general, the last book that that kind of tackled, I think, sort of, you know, you know average everyday people, honestly, is I don't know how many years ago this was, but Stuart McLean's, um, um The Way Home, where he just goes to, like, no-name small towns and just ha- has interviews uh, with these people and that's what the, the freedom convoy was to a large extent right is a meeting of people like that who just were resisting the the government narrative uh, ha- had objections to government policies and they all kind of came together and what turned into a big block party in the capital in in front of parliament there's a genre here right if there there is no market for canadian or like no existing i don't want to say market i want to say supplier of of canadian conservative books which is books written by conservative writers but from an explicitly Canadian perspective. I'd love to read more stuff like this.
1: Well, I mean, we'll see how it sells first before I commit to anything. But one, one, one idea that I had, which I, I guess I will uh, share with you and hope that no one else takes it, is to do a broader look at the freedom movement, which is, I, I think, a term that's foreign to a lot of people that aren't in our orbit, and, and even to some people that pay attention to politics. But it, it's broadly speaking, these this movement of people that have started rallying together and standing up to protest against covid restrictions and vaccine mandates and canada has always been very slow to develop on this whereas if you look in europe uh, some of the rallies they had even going back to you know spring and summer of 2020 were massive whereas in canada they were pretty small to organize and they started gaining steam certainly headed into the 2021 election but still the freedom movement in canada is a a relatively recent advent and i think the freedom convoy is certainly the climax uh, of this at least for now. So I think delving into that would be a fascinating story in which you take a broader look that I think touches on Canadian culture, Canadian political culture, the media culture, and so on.
0: One of the uh, things that strikes me about the the current narrative about the convoy is is that it was a a right-wing protest, that it was a conservative protest. But when I go through your your first couple of chapters here on the origins of the convoy, the people that you're talking about, um, and granted, you don't have a ton of space to go through their backstories, but they don't strike me as people who would understand themselves as conservative. And one of the reasons it be kind of became considered a conservative thing is because they only trusted um, alternative media outlets, which generally are right wing or conservative to cover them uh, because they only got help from from libertarians or places like the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms, which is run by, you know, John Carpe, a very conservative guy. Would you say that those who launched the convoy initially would have called themselves as conservative or could have been characterized as such or that merely they're viewed that way because conservatives were the only ones willing to treat them fairly and give them a hearing?
1: It's a bit of both. I mean, certainly for the organizers, they all seem to be coming from a conservative place on the spectrum ideologically, but I I think it's important to note that a great many of them were not expressly political people before this. I mean, some of them had voted, some of them hadn't. Most of them had never been involved in a protest before. Tamara Leach was a bit of an outlier. I mean, she had been involved in the Maverick Party, which is a, a Western Independence Party in Alberta, but of the people that came out to support it, that's a very different story and and one of the things i tried to do that first weekend in ottawa was just go around and talk to people and i mentioned a couple of these interactions in the book but it it would have been just tiring to go through all of them people that were coming you know one woman that i did reference in the book i think you know she had had a sign that said uh some variation of fully vaxxed black indigenous person of color pro-choice but she was anti-mandate and other people as well, Indigenous folks that were not politically conservative that had their own connection to the convoy because they had their own connection to this idea of freedom and what it meant to have a government Uh, telling you to do something and and there were a lot of people that were supporters of this that were protesters that came from all over the place and i think it was very similar to another idea you and i have discussed in the past which is the rise of of the people's party of canada in the last election Uh, a surge in support that came in large part by drawing from non-conservative places and i think the convoy did that as well but on a larger scale
0: I'd like to hear your take on on what you think the story of the Freedom Convoy will be long term because you, you got this book out fast, right? You know, this is, you know, you got it out in a couple of months and I can't imagine how many late nights you pulled because the sheer detail in this book means that you must have waded through. I don't know how many Facebook posts and watch. I don't know how many Facebook live streams. So, but right now we're still pretty close to the event. And one of the things I loved the most about about the convoy, honestly, are some things you mentioned in the book. And your glee doesn't come through as much as I thought it might have. But the the idea the idea of Canada style protests was pretty great. The idea that the the convoy was so effective at utilizing the word freedom that the CBC kind of complained that freedom was a right wing word, which seems to be an admission that that they should they should avoid in the future for the sake of their own credibility
1: and Canada flags as well. Canada flags are now symbols of the far right,
0: and that one's still going. That one's still going. Like there's people who fly Canada flags, and everybody's like, "Oh, oh, like you know, uh, this is clearly a problem. You should be flying the Ukraine flag, you know, or 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 the Pride flag. It is June, but the Canadian flag. This is this is now a symbol of the great unwashed trucker masses. You know that stormed that stormed Ottawa back in February. What do you think that besides this being a phenomenal human interest story, and I'm really glad to have gone up there and and, and witnessed it, I think it's a really inspiring story of 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 a lot of people who get pushed back into a corner and just decide to say enough. Uh, There's a lot of people who write on sort of the great agglomeration of government restrictions and 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 vulture capitalism and stuff like that. All of whom noticed the convoy, like guys like you know Chris Hedges who wrote The Wages of Rebellion on people who are pushed too far, but Paul Kingsnorth who writes one of the most interesting substacks on the internet. They all saw the convoy as sort of the sign of hope. Um, What do you think the story of the convoy will be long term? Was it a really cool flash in the pan? Uh, or is this something that's gonna that's gonna continue on from here
1: i think a little bit of both are, are true i mean one thing I, I i don't know if it's a fair comparison but one thing that jumps out to me is that there seems to be a lot of people trying to treat the convoy as woodstock you know this big conference and uh, con- uh, concert in the 60s that people tried to bring back they tried to recreate it and have anniversaries and you could never recreate something because the timing was just right the circumstances were just right and it really was a, a groundswell and, and there were a lot of people that were connected to the convoy in ottawa that absolutely love it and they they have just they, they it's it's changed their lives and i think justifiably so and they want to keep bringing it on i mean right now we see james tops uh, march to ottawa and the plan to have some big canada day fest and i think that's fine have fun but i, I think there are a lot of people that that want to recreate that and I'm, I'm not sure you can recreate it but i also don't think that makes it a flash in the pan i i think it means that it, it was necessary for the moment and, and it is. it Inspired a lot of people. I mean, even if it didn't yield the policy change that they triggered it looking for, there were a lot of people that really were hanging by a thread, and they found hope in the convoy. And you can't quantify that, but I heard it, I saw it, I felt it. And I think for those people, the convoy was very meaningful and, and will have an enduring effect.
0: Yeah, I got that sense from a lot of people I interviewed that that, that the convoy was just the coolest thing they'd ever done and the coolest thing they'd ever been part of and that nobody really wants to let it go.
1: And I think for a lot of people, again, these are folks that have uh, been told by the government they're less than, they've been told by the government that they don't matter, that their jobs don't matter, and all of a sudden they were in control and they had positions of leadership. I mean, one of the the fascinating things, and we didn't get into it in our discussion today, but one of the most fascinating things I learned writing the book was about the organizational structure that the convoy took and and how people ended up taking what we would call organizer positions or or leadership positions. And and genuinely, it was just people that showed up and did stuff were promoted, if such a word even existed, and and those that didn't weren't. And, And because of it, you had people of all backgrounds that had pretty key roles. And and in some cases, they ended up, you know, sitting against, sitting uh, at tables with police officers negotiating uh, this stuff. But that was ultimately what happened here. And for a lot of these people, yeah, they they had more meaning from their life because they've been devoting their efforts to something they really care about. Our
0: mutual friend there, David Paisley, I think in your book refers to it as the hierarchy of competence. People who got good at things just kept on doing them and eventually these networks formed. And I I did want to ask... Uh, You about about the leadership specifically because I was a little bit surprised just because I hadn't been expecting it, not because it doesn't make sense to me how vehement uh, the people you interviewed were about a couple of guys like like um, Randy Hillier, for one who was seen by a lot of the, the, the convoy type people or the people who supported the convoy as, as, as sort of a hero. But there is not anything nice said about him by any of the convoy organizers. In fact, they say that he made them look pretty bad.
1: I actually wanted to speak. This is one of my regrets. I wanted to, and I tried to speak with Randy Hillier for the book because I, I wanted his response to it. And, and I just, uh, ultimately that, that conversation never happened. But one thing that I, I would note in this is that there was this tendency for other people to try, and and I'm not talking about Randy, but in general, for different groups and different people to try to claim a little bit of the spotlight and have their own press conferences, have their own events, have their own stuff on the stage. And, and the quote unquote, official convoy organizers felt like Randy Hillier was trying to do his own thing. And, and that was the, the spirit of the comments they made. Now, again, I, I didn't approach this in a position of, of taking a side on it. I, I simply relayed what they were saying and I, I did my efforts to get the other side and, and wasn't able to do that. Uh, but I think that was quite interesting. Yeah. And, and then a lot of people that are out outside looking in would think that everyone was on one team uh, but on the inside it it wasn't always that way
0: was there anybody you really wanted to talk to to get their side of the story or to flesh out the story that you were telling more effectively that just you couldn't get a hold of or didn't talk to? You?
1: Yeah, I mean, there were a few. I, I, not that I went into the law enforcement side too, too much, but I did want to speak to someone in Ottawa police. I tried to speak to Peter Slowly, who was the deposed Ottawa police chief that actually convoy organizers viewed quite favorably. And also Steve Bell, the interim chief, and, and neither uh, responded to several queries Other people as well, I should point out, I mean, Tamara Leach and Chris Barber, two key organizers, they're under very strict bail conditions. So that limited my ability to have the conversations with them I would have liked. Now, fortunately, I did speak to both of them before they were arrested. So I was able to lean on on that material. And Pat King as well. I mean, not a guy I have a lot of time for, but he was part of the convoy story and he has been in jail since the convoy. He's been in jail since February 17th or 18th uh, and and still has not been released on bail. So no way to access him. And again, I, I would have been nice to talk to him just because there were some swipes made at him by organizers as well, which I, I mean, you mentioned Justin Ling. A lot of the critics of the convoy and media tried to elevate this guy up, Pat King, to have this status as being the ringleader of it all. And I think there were harsher words about him than about Justin Trudeau in some cases from convoy organizers.
0: In your book and the genesis story of of how King, um, who was again, you know, sort of like the, the mugshot for the whole convoy by folks like Ling, uh, is really interesting, like you talk about how he did he did publicize the convoy pretty effectively when a couple of the organize, the initial organizers went on to his live stream but then as they became aware of some of his really extreme statements about things like you know trudeau trudeau is probably going to catch a bullet was one of his predictions or at least he called it a prediction um, that they they distanced themselves from him they made really strong statements about him how did those not break through into the mainstream because one of the statements that you reference in the book here is one i i
1: hadn 't seen at the time
0: which is that, that Leach actually, you know, released a public statement condemning Pat
1: King, and there were a couple, and I think there were two issues. Number one is that. There there was no formal press strategy in the early stages of the convoy when Pat King's involvement was really contentious. So the, the convoy's public portal was its Facebook page where Tamara Leach was posting live videos and posting updates, but they weren't sending out press releases. They weren't doing mainstream media interviews and they were posting on that page a lot. I mean, I can tell you going back and trying to look through months and months of this, it was taking hours and hours and hours. And if anyone's tried to scroll back on Facebook, Facebook pages, every now and then your browser decides to freeze and you have to start all over again because you can't easily search by by date. So there was a lot of content there. So it would be very easy for someone to miss it. And I think also you had media that were not asking the questions and organizers that were not doing as good a job at the time of engaging with media. So so a lot of it got missed. And, and I think at a certain point as well, there just wasn't an interest in correcting it because they just wanted to view, oh, yeah, Pat King, he's the guy, he's the convoy organizer. And there was a, a bit of a pivot in press coverage when they started to call him convoy leader. And, and that was when, OK, he's been distanced as an organizer, but we still want to hang this whole thing on him. So we'll just call him a convoy leader now and still revolve our coverage around him. That was what you started to see later on in the convoy.
0: Yeah, because he didn't go home. Like, what was he actually like arrested for? Now, because I, I know that he he was referred to. It's really hard to figure out who he was because I did a bit of research into him during the convoy to kind of check out his more incendiary statements. And none of the incendiary statements actually cohere into any you know worldview. Like you know, like like right wing, right white supremacists, Like all of his views seem to be very random. Like, so who is this guy actually? For those who have heard about Pat King a million times but don't know who he is.
1: To be honest, and, and I should say, I had ne- I work in conservative media and conservative independent media. I had never heard of him before the start of the convoy, and, and that was my first exposure to him. But he has quite a large audience, especially out west. It, it sounds like he's been involved in the Wexit movements and Alberta independence movements in a, a peripheral way and ha- has cultivated a, a large audience about that. And and some of the stuff, if you watch his old live streams, it's is just garden variety, conservative commentary i mean he might have a bit of an edge to him he might have a bit more bravado than i, I would bring to it uh but yeah there there are some comments in there that I, I think did need to be called out some of those that the media had latched onto that i went back and listened to i found oh you know what actually they they did take this out of context and there are others where in context i'm like oh yeah no nope, definitely not a fan of that and, and like i said I, I have no time for him I also think that it's unfair right now that he still finds himself languishing behind bars. But I guess the approach that I try to take on on this is that, you know, whether you like him or not, he was a part of the story in the early days. But organizers saw him as a liability. The media saw him as the liability, and I think is their way into discrediting the whole thing. And, and that was why it would have been great to have his voice in there. But it just literally wasn't possible. And I did try reaching out to one of his lawyers even, but he, he went through lawyers uh, quite a bit in the last couple of months. So that wasn't even something that was able to be uh, fruitful
0: sort of a, as a wrap up um I, like a lot of people have been following the sort of confusing story of of the, how the convoy organizers have been dealing with the legal ramifications for the convoy and there's you know always these you know news stories on bail conditions and this and that where are things at for for the the, the three or four primary convoy organizers post convoy
1: it really depends. I mean, Tamara Leach is out on bail and she has very strict conditions. She can't have conversations with a number of other people that were involved in the convoy. She can't say anything that could be construed as support for the Freedom Convoy, uh, nor can she criticize COVID restrictions. Uh, you've got Chris Barber, who is not banned from social media like Tamara Leach is, but he can't use it to support anything related to the convoy. And then you've got other people like Tom Morazzo and Benjamin Dichter, who were uh, pretty front and center, certainly near the end, and they have, they were not arrested at all, so they have no restrictions whatsoever. Uh, I ran into Tom at a a dinner in in Toronto last week, he's doing well, he ran for the Ontario party in the last election, Uh, Benjamin Dichter, he's, I think, in in Florida or Central America right now, and he's doing a lot of advocacy around cryptocurrency, so people have gone different ways, and, and, and in some ways, they haven't been able to speak because of these bail conditions since they were arrested and i think that's been quite frustrating because many of these people were uh, they grew immensely immensely close in their three weeks in ottawa i mean people describe that relationship as, as being almost battle-like like in the trenches with you know your brothers and, and sisters in the fight against mandates and I, I i know battle analogies in a protest that was trumpeted as a violent insurrection might not be the best but uh, that that was the connection they forged with each other anyway
0: They're also inevitable. I think when you've got these like massive, you know, couple of ton steel boxes parked in front of the House of Commons, right? It just is what it is at that stage. So you've been doing journalism for over 10 years. And and, and one of the things you've always liked the most is the storytelling aspect of it. Besides just telling a really cool story about really interesting people. What are you hoping the book accomplishes?
1: There are two things. I mean, I started out wanting to simply document it uh, because you lose details as time goes on. And, you know, the media that gets things wrong in one story forms the basis of another story, which gets something else wrong. And I, and I wanted there to be something on record that was fresh, that was rooted in, in very real experiences from the convoy uh, of the organizer and also of the journalist, and in this case, me. But I also wanted to add something new. And I, I think that whether you support it or oppose it, There was a complexity to this, there was a nuance to this, and there was a significance to this that that was lost in a lot of the coverage, and and I think lost in a lot of the polarized views of this. And and I'm very much sympathetic to the convoy, and I think that conveys in the book. But I I try to be sympathetic without being sycophantic, and I think that I I do that. That's certainly the goal. So my hope is that even people that aren't fans of it can at least learn about why it was a thing, because it, it does work both ways. If you're looking at this... And you're wondering, how did this thing take over Ottawa? The book still answers that question, I believe.
0: Yeah, if you had to anticipate one criticism of the book from mainstream reviewers, what what do you think it's going to be?
1: I haven't reread it as many times as uh, some people that are trying to look for the, you know, the nit to pick will. But I I think one of the, the main criticisms that would be there is a subjective one, which is, did I do too much to diminish the problematic people and elevate the ones that are the ones that are more palatable. And and I think that I I did give Pat King and and James Botter, one that we haven't discussed. I think I did give them their, their due credit and say, yeah, this is how they were involved. But this is how organizers responded to them, but I think that would be the criticism of of you know were these people more involved or more central than i I've alluded to in the book. I don't think they are, but I would anticipate that would be one of the points of contention
0: you address that just in the course of the narrative when you you know realize Pat King wasn't at these things, right the idea that that tamara leach is, is is on the same level as Pat King, I think would be ridiculous to anybody just who's watched the footage, watched the, the press, like even somebody who doesn't like what they did, I think would have to come to that conclusion journalistically.
1: There's a reason that all of these other people were the ones on TV and doing the videos, Tamara Leach, Benjamin Dictor, Tom Marazzo, and not Pat King and James Bodder. And it's because, as the book explains how and when, they had been sidelined Quite early on, but they're also part of the story like you, you may not have a convoy without Pat King because he did devote so much attention to it in those early days when it was getting off the ground and the fundraising campaign was starting.
0: I recommend that everybody get this. Andrew, where can people find copies of this book?
1: It comes out on Friday, June 24th, The Freedom Convoy, The Inside Story of Three Weeks That Shook the the World. It's available on Amazon. Uh, My publisher has it at SutherlandHouseBooks.com. And I think Indigo is going to be carrying it as well. And uh, hopefully anywhere books are sold, you'll be able to get a copy.
0: Thanks so much for coming on to talk about this with us.
1: Hey, thank you, John. I appreciate the uh, kick in the pants to write it in the first place.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with Andrew Lawden, author of The Freedom Convoy, the inside story of three weeks that shook the world. And of course, many of you will know him as a journalist over at True North News. Thanks so much for joining the show this week. We do hope you'll join us again next week. Head over to lifesightnews.com. Click on the podcast tab. You can find the show there. You can subscribe to listen to past interviews, uh, including many interviews like this. And you can subscribe to get future interviews. Again, thanks so much. See you next week.